All right, so we're going to open today uh, with a look into Judges 6, uh, because as I thought about the lesson for this week and reviewed my notes, uh, I realized that I probably owed you an apology because I should have picked something like the Fruits of the Spirit to teach a Sunday school lesson on uh, to begin, and not the Covenant Wrath of God. Uh, However... Uh, we're knee deep at this point, uh, and so we're going to continue. But I want to look at, at uh, Judges 6. This is the story of Gideon. And this actually, my family has gone through Joshua recently in family worship, and we are now in Judges and just read the story of Gideon. And. Uh, That's where I'm getting this, but there's something that I want to point out that I think will help us as we approach uh, Zephaniah in this very harsh prophecy. Then the, uh, this is uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, and also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor oxen, nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land and destroy it. So Israel was greatly uh, impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, typically at this point... In a statement like this from a prophet, you would hear a therefore. And therefore uh, would then come the judgment that God would pronounce. Therefore, I will, and I'm going to do all of these things against you. However, it stops, but you have not obeyed my voice. It stops, and the next verse is, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. So all of a sudden, right before the judgment, right before the pronouncement of judgment, uh, we stop and the angel of the Lord is here under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpha, Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while the son of Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? 
And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and has delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to them, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. And show me a sign that it, that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offerings and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So, Gideon, so, so now the angel of the Lord is waiting underneath the terebinth tree. And so Gideon went and prepared a young goat, an unleavened bread, and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth tree. And presented them, and the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, and lay them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire rose out of the rock, and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. This is I read all of that to read this verse. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So he said, so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. And he goes on. Gideon uh, didn't, didn't particularly start well or didn't particularly end well, but he was faithful uh, and uh, what we see in verse 22, though, is Gideon is terrified that he, became, that he came face to face with the covenant God. And in our modern context, we tend to have an, e- an ease of access for good reason with Christ as our mediator. But there tends to be perhaps almost too easy of access. We, we see, not fortunately, not in this church, but in other churches where people will pray to Daddy God and other silly things like that. Uh, We tend to, I know, we tend to, uh, uh, in the modern evangelical setting, maybe have too much ease of access to a holy God. Matthew Henry says about this Judges 6 passage, but he must no longer walk by sight, uh, but though he must no longer walk by sight, uh, he might still live by faith, that faith which comes from hearing. For the Lord said to him with an audible voice, these encouraging words, Peace be unto thee, all is well, and be thou satisfied that it is so. Fear not that he came to employ thee, uh, thee did not attend to slay thee, but thou shalt not die. See how God, see how ready God is to revive the hearts of those that tremble at his word and presence and to give those that stand in awe of his majesty assurances of his mercy. So in the same vein, Dale Ralph Davis says this sort of talk, verse 22, is strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. 
For we think intimacy with God is an unalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. Therefore, there is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. It is God who can speak peace. It is only God who can speak peace to the trembling. And that verse, or that uh, sentence... Uh, honestly, was a little bit of a gut punch to me. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness uh, in this study. Uh, and so as we consider that, let's turn to Zephaniah 1. So I'm going to read... I think I'll read all of the first chapter... However, this section, I think, really closes at the end of 2-3, so I may just keep going. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh. For all the merchant people are cut down, and all those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass in that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation, and they shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasten quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy. 
for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Amen. So, in verse 1, we have, uh, we're immediately met with uh, several alarming things, especially for a prophet. Uh, the first is not alarming at all for a prophet, in fact. Uh, the word of the Lord came uh, immediately, right out of the gate. Zephaniah is setting himself up uh, as a prophetic mediator of the covenant. This is God's word. These are God's words to God's people. And I, I think, at least in my own mind, uh, I tended to think, you know, there's 16 prophets in the Old Testament, right? There's four majors and 12 minors or something along those lines. Um, there are, in fact, hundreds of prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, everybody from Abraham is referred to as a prophet. Moses is considered uh, the, uh, the prime prophet. Uh, uh, Christ is considered the consummate prophet, the prophet that consummates all of the, all of the other uh, prophets throughout Scripture. So this is a claim to be an heir to the divine authority that was established at Sinai with Moses and consummated ultimately with Christ. Um, Deuteronomy 18 uh, regulates the office of a prophet. And if his words were found to be untrue, he would be stoned. He would be put to death. Uh, So right out of the gate, Zephaniah is telling us these are God's words Uh, And his own life will be owned uh, if he should not speak God's words. Um, So, secondly, what's unusual about this uh, is that uh, most of the prophets in the Old Testament did not supply any type of genealogy. Uh, In fact, there are eight prophets with no genealogy. Uh, Six prophets, six of the writing prophets, only list the father. Uh, and so in, in this situation, we have Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. Uh, so we have a lot more of a genealogy uh, than is supplied in most other prophets throughout the Old Testament, um, which, which is unusual and worth noting, although I will also tell you most commentators don't know why uh, all of this is supplied. But I think I have an idea uh, why, based on the themes of the book, um, I believe that uh, Hezekiah is referenced here going back several generations because he was the good king. And you remember what we discussed last time. We have to remember that in this context within Judah, they have maintained a Davidic line of kings for 350 years at this point, all under the covenantal promises to David that a king would come, that a Messiah would come. This is what they're looking for, that a Messiah would come through that Davidic line and save the people, save Israel. And so that's what Judah is looking for. And Hezekiah 
aside from Josiah that's currently reigning, Hezekiah was the most recent king. Uh, that there was a good king. You remember Manasseh was the one where blood was filling the streets. He was murdering his own children and casting them into the fire uh, for his own profit. Uh, Ammon was the same way, did evil in the sight of the Lord, was only king for two years before he was taken out by his servants. Um, And so uh, you have Zephaniah setting up the people for... Uh, for an understanding of the gospel. You have Zephaniah setting up uh, a Judean uh, person uh, with this idea of the Messiah in their head, of this king that would be coming uh, with, uh, with this genealogy. So, what about Josiah, son of Ammon? Um, there is a question, why would Ammon be named at the beginning of Zephaniah? Um, and I think, you know, we talked a little bit last time about Josiah. Josiah was a good king. Um, and and uh, it was under Josiah where the book of the law was rediscovered in 622. Uh, but it was actually in 628, according to Second uh, Chronicles 34, uh, so it was before the law was rediscovered that Josiah began his reforms within Israel. It was eight years into his reign uh, when, uh, or I'm sorry, 12 years into his reign uh, when Josiah began tearing down the altars of the false gods, even before the discovery of the law. Josiah was a good king, and it tarnishes his name somewhat and his legacy to call him son of Ammon, uh, king of Judah at the beginning of this prophecy. Uh, And part of the reason for that uh, is uh, Zephaniah is pronouncing judgment upon God's people. There may have been a tendency for people to say, we have Josiah. Perhaps Josiah is our Messiah. Uh, Perhaps he is the one that we are looking for. He's tearing down all of these Uh, He's tearing down all of these uh, idols all throughout the land. Um, So what about the reforms of Josiah? Uh, We said we would talk about it a little bit more last time. Um, There are many old commentators that believe that Josiah, uh, or I'm sorry, that Zephaniah was a book that was written before Deuteronomy or the book of the law was discovered in Josiah's day. Uh, and most of the modern commentators believe that uh, Zephaniah was written after the book of Deuteronomy. And I know we all here have a tendency to trust Matthew, Henry, and Calvin over anybody that's still alive. Uh, however, there is significant reason to believe that the book of Zephaniah was written, and this prophecy came after the discovery of the law. So I wanted to read, there are several, I said last time, there are several parallels. John accused me of never drinking my coffee last time, so here, this is for you. Just a... There are several parallels between Deuteronomy and Zephaniah, and I'll just read a few of them, but I want you to get a feel for what we're looking at here. So there are times where Zephaniah, I think it's six times just in the first chapter, where Zephaniah quotes Deuteronomy. Zephaniah 1.13, uh, 
Uh, and these are all, this is Robertson's book. Uh, these are all uh, Robertson's translations uh, from both Zephaniah and Deuteronomy. So they won't match word for word your, your Bible necessarily. Zephaniah 1.13 And they shall build houses and they shall not dwell in them. And then Deuteronomy 28.30 And a house you shall build, but you shall not dwell in it. And then Zephaniah 1.13 again And they shall plant vineyards, but they shall not drink their wine. And then Deuteronomy 28.39 Vineyards you shall plant and you shall serve, but their wine you shall not drink and you shall not glean. Zephaniah 1.15, a day of constraint and distress. And then Deuteronomy 28.53, and 57, in the constraint and in the distress by which your enemy will distress you. Zephaniah 1.15 again, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of cloud and thick cloud. Deuteronomy 4.11, the mountains with darkness, cloud and thick cloud. So you get the idea. He goes on. We could probably read these forever. There's probably an entire Sunday school class just in the links between uh, Deuteronomy and Zephaniah. But there's parallel phrasing is the point uh, between between these two books. Uh, We already talked about Josiah's early purging in 628. If you want to read more about that, 2 Chronicles 34, even before the law was discovered. Uh, So Calvin has a salient point on uh, why then this terrible prophecy in the midst of Josiah's reform, the good King Josiah. Calvin says, since then, the pious king had strenuously and courageously promoted the interests of true religion. It seems a wonder that God was so was still so much displeased. But we we must remember that though Josiah sincerely worshipped God, yet the people were not really changed. For it has often happened that God roused the chief men and leaders, while few or hardly any followed them, but only yielded a feigned obedience. This was no doubt the case in the time of Josiah. The hearts of the people were alienated from God and true religion, so that they chose rather to rot in their filth than to return to the true worship of God. So if that's not a sober enough uh, comment, Calvin again goes on, For the remnants of Baal were not seen in the temple, nor in the streets, not in the chapels, not in the high places, but their hidden impiety is here discovered by the Spirit of God. And no doubt their sin was the more heinous and less excusable because the people refused to follow their pious leader. It is not good enough to be around holy people. So little children, it is not good enough just to go to church. It's not good enough just to be here. It is your heart that the Lord cares about. So, as we move into verse 2, I was hoping to get through the entire first chapter, and here I am, one verse in. Um, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks. Along with the wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the land. So the way that this is broken up is in verses 2 and 3, we see global judgment pronounced. In verses 14 through 13, we see judgment upon Judah. In verses 14 through 18, 
which is the end of the chapter, we see judgment, global judgment again addressed, and then a call to repentance in two three, uh, or in in uh, chapter two verses one through three. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. What we see here is God's judgment upon creation. This may sound reminiscent of the judgment that God pronounced during Noah's day. And if it does, it should. Uh, Genesis Genesis 6, 7 says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. So what God is doing here and what Zephaniah is telling us is that uh, we are seeing a judgment that is on par with the judgment that we saw in Noah's day. But there's really more than that. The order in which the judgment is presented in verse 3 is an unwinding or an undoing of creation. Man and beast that were created on the last day, they are the first to go and then the birds of the heaven, and then, as if to say, I'm going to do even more than I did in Noah's day, there's a judgment pronounced upon the fish of the sea. So we're seeing a a reversal of of how all of these things were created, that, that God is unwinding creation in a sense. The stumbling blocks along with the wicked. By the way, uh, God is not breaking his promises with Noah. He's fulfilling his covenant with Noah, in a sense, uh, because uh, he's, he's coming in judgment. This is the end, uh, is what is being described here. So, what we saw in the days of creation were when God created the heavens and the earth, uh, he, he divided the light from the darkness. He divided the water from the firmament. And all of, that, all of that phrasing about being divided is all covenant language. Um, so when, when Zephaniah is looking at undoing God's creation, undoing uh, this... When we're looking at this creational reversal of of God's judgment, uh, what we're seeing is God's covenant promises upon creation coming to fruition. So there are uh, there are many prophets uh, that speak similar types of words. Uh, Jeremiah thirty three. Uh, there's a covenant with the day and the night. Um, Isaiah uh, five seven and thirty two. Uh, mirrors the curse of God uh, in, within Genesis 3.18. This is Robertson on the, on the, in the book Christ and the Prophets. The work of redemption assumes the covenantal structure of creation as the point from which man deviated by... Uh, from the point from which man deviated by sin and is the basis for the expectation of earth's renewal. So what we see here is uh, God unwinding all of creation and his uh, covenant judgment upon creation. So stumbling blocks in verse 3. And the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. 
The idea here is that the judgment is on all of creation because man has taken the good things of God and twisted them for his own sin. So turn with me to Matthew 13 quickly. Verse 40, actually, verse 37. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares of the sons are the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is, is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdoms all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and I will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth in the sun as the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's an interesting allusion to stumbling blocks in in Matthew 13, but that's the idea here that is being presented in this global judgment at the beginning of Zephaniah. So moving on to verse 4, what we begin to see in this next section is God's covenant people are cut off. So we've seen sort of the the view of... uh, the covenant being cut off in all of creation, but now we're going to look specifically at God's people. So Jerusalem is the very place where God dwelt with his people. Uh, and so Jerusalem becomes the target in verse 4. Um, and I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagans priests. So God had promised in Genesis 49, verse 10, that the scepter would not depart from Judah. And here God is saying, I'm cutting Judah off. I'm cutting off Jerusalem. So this idea of stretching out his hand, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. This is important. Uh, and it's seen all throughout the Old Testament, God stretching out his hand. But what this essentially means is this is God's beyond normal intervention into the life of his people. So God stretches out his hand or his arm and liberated Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 26. Uh, and then in Matthew 5, Jesus stretches out his hand to cleanse a leper. There's probably an entire lesson in, in that relationship. Um, but I'm going to gloss over it. Um, Christ ultimately stretches out his hands at the cross in both judgment and in mercy, saving his people. Um, So this is the covenant fruition uh, of God's promises and Israel's deeds uh, in verse 4. The ability to exist with God is cut off here in verse 4. So to cut off every trace of is the idea to exterminate. I'm going to move forward because we're running out of time very quickly here. What we see in verse 5 is 
corruptions of worship. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. These were stars and moons and, and suns that people would worship. And they didn't have to do it in the temple of God where they had erected Baal. They were doing it at home. Um, Robertson says, Too often a broad tolerance toward worship is promoted even within the framework of those generally professing faith in the God of, of Scripture, even though immoral actions such as violence and deceit may be roundly condemned. But the true prophet of God perceived the lie embedded in this moralistic approach to religion only as the fountainhead of devotion to God is purified by the truth. Only as the fountainhead of devotion to God is purified by the truth will the concrete actions of man conform to the law of God concerning love to neighbor. Calvin says this worship made up of various inventions was an abominable corruption which God would punish, for he can by no means bear that there should be such an alliance, that idols should be submitted, substituted in its place, and that any part of his glory should be transferred to the inventions of men. This is the true meaning. God's people at this point in time, despite all of the uh, reforms of Josiah, uh, God's people at this time had given their hearts over to idolatry. And they had given their hearts over to, in, in, specifically in this case, and what's named for judgment is the worshiping of the hosts of heaven. Uh, and the reason that they would do that is that the hosts of heaven were seen as the gods of fertility. The people of God wanted uh, to be profitable. They wanted to be secure. They wanted to be prosperous. We just read in Judges uh, earlier about the Midianites coming in and taking all the fruit of the land. Um, it, it would be a temptation for God's people in the midst of that judgment to call upon uh, the gods of their neighbors and say, I'm going to worship the stars and the sun and the moon uh, because I literally can't feed myself. Uh, and if you keep reading in Judges, you'll see that that very night, Gideon is tearing down the idol of Baal uh, that's right next to the altar that they sacrificed to God on. Um, but this was a temptation for God's people. And honestly, it's a temptation for us also. I, you know, we, we, don't have, uh, we don't have idols that we have erected here in our sanctuary, uh, hopefully. There are some churches, however... Um, but uh, there is a desire within each of us to sacrifice a little something, sacrifice a little bit of trust. Uh, you know, perhaps it's our 401k. We've got a little bit of trust in our 401k because that's what's going to provide for us. But what do we put our trust in to provide for our every need? And I realize I'm out of time here, so I'm going to go ahead and shut this down. But as we get into, idolatry is dealt with all throughout the book of Zephaniah. So as we get into uh, dealing with Israel's idolatry, consider the idols in your own heart uh, and what you look forward to, what you put your trust in, uh, uh, and how that may corrupt your ability to worship God. So let, let's pray in closing.